Superman and OMAC One Man Army Corps. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Zoom Yukonore. Taking you through a classic superhero team up, DC Comics presents number 61, cover dated September 1983. And Zoom, the issue features the work of one of your all time favorite artists, George Perez, n'est-ce pas? Ah, indeed, sir. And, and this is the only uh, DC Comics presents story that has been illustrated by George Perez. Um, his other work that appeared in this title was the cover and a two page bonus pinup in DC Comics Presents issue 38. A pinup that featured every DC Comics Presents guest star up to that point, except for one, much to Rob Kelly's chagrin. Not sure I can guess uh, which character. <laughs> oh, uh, we wonder. Mr. Perez also illustrated the cover of issue 94. I do not believe the new Teen Titans preview comic that was in DC Comics Presents issue 26 would truly count. But at any rate, in issue 61, we are in for a real Perezian treat. Right, and this is uh, one of the very earliest American comic books I ever bought. Like the first issue of a DC Comics Presents I ever bought was the first American comic I ever bought. DC Comics Presents number 59, which is only you know, two months earlier. So it's got a special place in my heart. This is the Superman and OMAC, the one-man army corps team-up. And uh, it's, I think, one of the, even before we get into it, it's the very essence of of superhero team-ups that you would get two stars that could not normally go together well because they come from different eras, and yet we find a way. And that's what makes it magical for me because it's not, you know, normal. Yes, it's basically the chocolate and peanut butter of (laughs) team-ups. Uh, tastes so good. Uh, <laughs> two, two great tastes that taste great together, yes. In each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character to defend. Uh, so in this case, Zoom, who's your guy? Superman, I choose you. And so, well, it'd be truer to say that OMAC chooses me, but he does. I'll take OMAC. And as usual, we'll preface with a reason or reasons why we like the character we've chosen. So Zoom. What's so great about Superman, anyway? Well, I believe you've essentially answered your own question, sir. Because when you say the name Superman, everyone, and I mean everyone, immediately knows of whom you're speaking. Although each person would have their own individual interpretation of the character. From the brutish uh, social justice warrior of the 1930s and the 1940s, to the goofy science fiction hero of the 1950s and 1960s, to the more humanized and less powerful versions that came later, even the yuppie Superman of the 80s. In every case, Superman represents an ideal for everyone to aspire to, a a hero that always does the right thing for the simple reason of it being the right thing to do. Even during the so-called Super Dickery era? Oh yes, even during the so-called Super Dickery era of the character. uh, Superman had a very noble reason behind every Super Dick move he made, I believe, uh, regardless of whether it made any logical sense. Uh, If anything, those stories had taught me how not to treat other people. (laughs) And now, why don't you tell me what's so great about OMAC, sir? Uh, Well, Kirby creation. I'm a huge fan of Jack Kirby's 1970s work, especially post-Fourth World. The stuff that really is in its own world. The strips like OMAC, like Commandy, uh, over at Marvel, like uh, Devil Dinosaur, or 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is like the craziest adaptation of anything ever. Kirby's uh, OMAC is, uh, there's a nice omnibus that I'm, I have right here next to me. And so I, I read it late in life uh, through this collection. Uh, but, I mean, this character is pure Kirby. Just like super action, super vehicles, craziness. And, I mean, in in his origin story, the first words he, that come out of his mouth once he becomes, once Buddy Blank becomes OMAC, is he gets shot in the back and he's saying, My body is rejecting the bullets. Like, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, OMAC is, you know, a hyper-action character. And there aren't a whole lot of stories about him uh, over time. We'll talk about his publication history later. But mm. because this was one of the very earliest comics I read, uh, from the American side, obviously, I, I was raised on Euro comics. He's had a special place in my heart. And uh, as we'll see, he wasn't necessarily as Kirby-esque in this story. No, no. This this is well past the, the Kirby series and after he left DC. That's most likely why. And this is the first time that we tackle DC Comics Presents on the show. So 
Let's give the folks at home a few details on the series. DC Comics Presents was a comic book series published by DC Comics from 1978 to 1986. It ran for 97 issues and four annuals and featured team-ups between Superman and a wide variety of other characters of the DC Universe. On a personal note, it was my entryway into the DC Universe very much at that time. The wider DC Universe, not just like the, uh, I think Super Friends was really my entryway into the, the actual world. It was mine as well, sir. Another reason why it's close to my heart is that it introduced Ambush Bug to the world. Hmm. The brand would be used again, notably as an eight-issue Julius Schwartz tribute. He was the editor on the original series for its entire run. And that was in 2004. And there was a line of 100-page reprint issues in 2010, which bore the title DC Comics Presents. But it was never again as a team-up book. Superman's next team-up series would be the post-Man of Steel action comics by John Byrne, uh, at least until issue 600. Uh, Indeed, sir. And it would be remiss of me to not point out that DC Comics Presents was not the first DC Comics title to actually feature regular Superman team-ups. That honor belongs to World's Finest, which in 1970 broke away from the long-running Superman-Batman model in issue 198 to have Superman team up with other heroes of the DC Universe, including The Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Dr. Fate, the Emma Peel, Diana Prince, Wonder Woman, uh, and many others. Uh, this new format lasted for almost two years, ending in issue 213. In fact, the first of these non-Batman team-ups was a two-part story featuring The Flash, and I believe the launch of the 1978 DC Comics Presents title paid tribute to that initial Superman team-up run, because the first story was also another two-part Flash partnering. I don't know why I didn't know this. You you school me, sir. Now, really, I, I've been compiling a list of team-ups for this show, and I'm almost up to a, a thousand team-ups across, you know, all of comics. I don't know why I didn't know this, so I've got to add those to the list. Well, you didn't ask me, sir, but, you know, you already have a thousand team-ups. It's quite an endeavor already. <laughs> well, we probably won't do them all. Now, while Superman needs no introduction, uh, let's talk about OMAX publication history. OMAX was created in 1974 by Jack Kirby, as I said, following the cancellation of his Fourth World series, and was reportedly developed strictly due to Kirby needing to fill his contractual quota of 15 pages a week. As envisioned by Kirby, OMAC was essentially Captain America set in the future, an idea Kirby had toyed with some years earlier while at Marvel Comics, but had never realized. It lasted only eight issues, currently collected in that gorgeous hardcover omnibus that I love so much, even if it does end rather abruptly. Now, other creators bore OMAC's torch, but it never did blaze as brightly. A single Jim Starlin OMAC backup was published in Commandy, a series that had previously revealed that Buddy Blank was Commandy's grandfather, uh, but Commandy was canceled immediately after that first strip, so others finished it uh, in the back of Warlord instead, which is a weird place, and it was frankly atrocious. Then this issue of DC Comics Presents, uh, and then the next big OMAC story is John Byrne's black and white four-issue prestige series in 1991 that tied up the loose ends from the previous series. In the 2000s, DC cannibalized a lot of Jack Kirby stuff, so Batman wound up creating Brother Eye and an army of contemporary OMACs, and there was an eight-issue limited series called OMAC that resulted from this. The real OMAC and Commandy were relegated to Earth-51, and so on. Now, a new contemporary OMAC was created by Keith Giffen, a Kirby obsessive just like John Byrne, for the New 52, but this series, while very much in the insane spirit of the original stories, didn't last beyond the eighth issue. It's always eight issues with OMAC for some reason. Uh, This OMAC is still around, as of Rebirth, as a friend and ally of Blue Beetles. Yes. And you're right, if I I may, about the the series ending abruptly, but at least the Jim Starlin backup uh, was picking up where that story left off. And and I think it was the DC implosion that uh, resulted in that series being canceled, um, because I believe the next OMAC backup that appeared in The Warlord was basically the second Jim Starlin backup that was planned for... Uh, the next issue of Commandy, which never saw print. At least it's picking up where it left off, but you're right. It was 
the whole tone of the, of the OMAC story just kind of turned on its ear. But at least they kept it in continuity, because in the end of issue eight of OMAC, you know, Brother Eye gets encased in this molten uh, rock uh, and is, is almost rendered powerless. And of course, we see him in that state in Commandy number 50, uh, which is the next time we would see Brother Eye um, after the OMAC series was canceled. So at least they kind of kept that continuity intact. I got to give them props mm-hmm. for that. Right. Um, but interestingly enough, the OMAC Commandy relationship of OMAC being Commandy's grandfather, it's actually mentioned in the letters page of this issue of DC Comics Presents that we we're covering, because the letter in question was in response to issue 57's team-up tale of Superman and the Atomic Knights, which essentially was retconning all of those classic Silver Age Atomic Knights tales as a sophisticated computer simulation military training program. The letter writer's view, which I happen to share, was that this retcon was essentially unnecessary, since that brilliant Hercules Unbound title by Jerry Conway in the 1970s actually connected the Atomic Knights with Commandy and OMAC's future timeline, and it was established in Superman Volume 1, Issue 295, that the Commandy timeline and the Legion of Superheroes timeline were actually alternate futures that coexisted. But make no mistake, I did enjoy that story in DC Comics Presents issue 57. And just because the Atomic Knights were a computer simulation in 1980s Earth-1, it didn't necessarily negate the existence of those Silver Age Atomic Knight stories in the alternative timeline. But I digress. Well, if I didn't like digression... I wouldn't be a fan of Lord Byron's work, which I am. Uh, Thanks for delving even deeper than I did, Zoom. Shall we get into the story itself? Of course. The Once and Future War, by writer Len Wein, illustrators George Perez and Pablo Marcos, with an assist from Rick Holberg, letterer John Costanza, colorist Gene D'Angelo, as edited by Julius Schwartz. The day after the day after a thousand tomorrows, in a world that is to come, OMAC, the one-man army corps, bursts through the wall of a criminal intercorp science lab, unstoppable, relentless, and thanks to the energies uploaded to him by the orbiting Brother Eye, never tiring. The criminal scientists rush to finish their work, and just in time, manage to send their robotic, pre-programmed assassin, codenamed Murder Mech, back through time. Omac jumps after it, disappearing into the time stream just before the time machine explodes. Meanwhile, years earlier in the world to come, is the world already here? Or was here, since this story takes place in 1983. Say, does that mean that we're actually traveling back in time ourselves, Siskoid? Oh, oh, never mind. (laughs) It is present-day Metropolis, let's leave it at that. And there's a police standoff with a squad of the city's finest versus would-be criminal mastermind Nick Bravo and his band of gun-toting ruffians who were caught in what I am sure is their first liquor store robbery. Bravo and his gang find themselves hilariously outgunned by the police, but before they can make another move, a red, tall robot from the future suddenly appears in their midst. Declaration. I am Murder Mac, Intercorp, Death, Droid, Classification, 42119, your clothes, give them to me, now. Then, realizing that the release of the Terminator movie is still over a year away, he inquires from Bravo's gang exactly where his intended victim is. And despite Murder Mech's stated name and description, one of the crooks believes this red hulking mechanical man to be some sort of robot cop which is such a silly concept that has no lasting cinematic value whatsoever. And he fires his gun at him. Now the bullets ricochet off of Murder Mech, who further clarifies that he is indestructible before swatting the crook aside. He then fires powerful energy blasts that smash through the wall of the liquor store and one of the police squad cars outside. And seeing how easily Murder Mech makes his way through the police barricade, Bravo and his gang see the death droid as their means of escape, when suddenly Superman arrives having heard this ruckus from across town with super hearing. Murdermech lifts the squad car and tries to squash the Man of Steel with it, and is just as effective as sticking a diner note on a memo spike. Superman leaps forward and knocks Murdermech down with a single punch. Not expecting such awesome physical strength in his opponent, Murdermech switches tactics and fires a half-dozen mini-missiles that knock Superman backward into a conveniently abandoned brownstone building that completely collapses atop the Man of Steel. Assessing that Superman
Superman had been properly dealt with. Murdermech disperses the remaining police by shooting fire from his mechanical arms and leaves to proceed to it with his mysterious mission, with Nick Bravo's gang following close behind. Omac materializes in the now battle-torn liquor store and walking out of the rubble is stopped by police officers who naturally think him responsible. With a single gesture, he sends all three of them flying. And that makes Superman, who is rising out of the brownstone debris, also naturally think that Omac is responsible for the mechanical menace endangering his city and people. So he sends the mohawked marauder flying with an angry punch. Recovering quickly, Omac rips a lamppost out of its moorings and directs it at the attacking Man of Steel, but... The lamppost splinters against Superman's invulnerable body as the Man of Tomorrow swings his fist again. Omac tumbles out of the way and lands a punch. Meanwhile, from another camera angle, we see that Superman is slightly knocked by Omac's blow, but he more than slightly knocks Omac back with a super uppercut. He then pins Omac against the outer wall of another building as he calls for a timeout, sensing that they should be working together instead of fighting. Superman brusquely retorts that Omac should have thought of that before he started this little slugfest. Omac reminds Superman that he was the one who started the fight, and that perhaps they should talk things out. Superman realizes that Omac is correct, and, admitting his mistake, flies Omac to one of the tallest towers in the city to provide an explanation for everything that is happening, leaving a squad of groaning cops to pick themselves up and conduct crowd and traffic control. Omac tells his story, a tale of the world that's coming, where unrelenting technology is the new religion and the tenuous peace is kept by the Global Peace Agency, who, using a super-secret, self-sufficient satellite called Brother Eye, transformed the lowly Buddy Blank into the living embodiment of some ancient god of war, Omac, one-man army corps. Elsewhere, Murder Mech is telling the same story to the criminals who dared follow him. It is his mission to prevent that future history from occurring by assassinating one Norman Blank, an ancestor of Omax. He doesn't give the crooks a choice. They must help him. Meanwhile, Superman agrees to help Omax stop Murder Mech and uses his telescopic vision to locate the death droid, who is using his bioscanner to locate his target at Metro Central Station which is essentially this city's version of New York Grand Central Station. After scanning a number of individuals in the crowd, Murdermech obtains a positive result from a brown-suited man who is passing one of the station janitors picking up some trash from the floor. Murdermech declares to the man that he is his target, Sarah Con- uh, er, sorry, Norman Blank, and it is time for him to die. The man in the suit is startled with disbelief as the janitor picks up his broom and nonchalantly continues about his work. Murdermech fires another barrage of those mini-missiles that we saw earlier at the man, but Superman smashes through the roof and manages to fend off their explosive blast this time, now that he has a better idea of what he is dealing with. Superman then picks up the man and flies him up to a high ledge that is, quote, comparatively safe while he deals with Murdermech. Murdermech also comes to the realization that he has to eliminate Superman if his mission is to succeed, and thus verbally shifts his priorities to the goal. Superman does a two-fisted hammer punch to smash the mechanized menace through the floor of the main station to take the fight into the less populated railway terminal below. Murdermech at first seems to have the upper hand, using another one of his bizarre weapons to ensnare the Man of Steel in unbreakable plastic tendrils and whip him through a few railway cars, sending him crashing onto a subway platform. Murdermech may be otherwise occupied, but his target is far from safe as blasts tear through Metropolis's Grand Central Station. These come from the Murderbot's new henchmen, flying personal warcraft with orders to kill the future. Only Omax stands in their way and he makes short work of one of the crooks, but without the element of surprise, and with his energies dwindling without Brother Eye in this era's skies, he may not be so lucky with the three that remain. While Omax deals with the deadly Disney World teacup ride of terror, the station janitor busily tasks his broom to sweep away the piles of patented Parisian rubble on the floor. In the lower terminal, Superman and Murdermech trade a few more blows before the robot lifts an entire subway car, thinking that it would be more effective than the police car in smashing the Metropolis Marvel. In an awesome series of panels and exposition, Superman uses his heat vision to melt the entire subway car into slag, which engulfs Murdermech. A quick burst of super-cold breath then solidifies the molten mass onto a giant lump of solid metal trapping the death droid within. The battle over, Superman now ponders how to return the robot and Omac back to where they belong. Centuries hence, 
Brother I directs electromagnetic energies at the destroyed time machine and starts to rebuild it. Back in the present, the metal chunking casing murder mech explodes, knocking Superman off his feet and wondering if anything can stop that thing. Murdermech declares yet again that he is invincible and that he will continue to strike Superman down. Superman responds that he get knocked down, but he get up again. Murdermech is never gonna keep him down. Superman declares that Murdermech is not just fighting a man, but quote, fighting an ideal, and an ideal can never be destroyed. He then hammers the robot with a blinding roundhouse punch that sends it crashing through a railway terminal wall. Superman staggers, exhausted from that final shot, he is surprised to see Murdermech rise once more, once against declaring that he is The mammoth murdering menaces mechanic seize up, making Murdermech fall on his face and explode. Superman then collects the man in the suit from the high ledge and checks in on Omak. When Superman swoops in, Omak has already defeated Murdermech's henchman. Superman then decides to introduce Omak to his ancestor, only to learn that the man in the brown suit is not Norman Blank, but Arnold Berkowitz, hardware salesman, who is just as confused as our two heroes. Omak will never know who Norman Blank really was. Brother I has found him through time, and he fades from view, offering the Man of Steel final thanks. Superman continues to express his bewilderment at protecting the wrong man, oblivious to the station janitor behind him continuing to clean up the mess from the battle, and also oblivious to the fact that the janitor's identification badge bears the name Norman Blank. And that is the Once and Future War. Uh, it ends on an ironic twist. So what did you think of this? Well, let's start with the, uh, the, the cover, actually. I'd like to talk about the cover sure. because it looks to me like a tribute to The Flash of Two Worlds. Is that possible? Wouldn't put it past uh, Mr. Perez of doing that. Yes, I, I think so. In fact, I think that Norman Blank guy in the brown suit uh, yelling, help me, would have been very appropriate. Right there at yeah. the, the bottom yeah, of the of the image. Because we have on that cover, we see Superman on one side in the present and Omak on the other side in the future. And both are attacking Murder Mech, uh, who is perhaps being that brick wall on the the original uh, Flash cover. Right, indeed, indeed. In fact, you know, it, at first, it's hard to tell what Murder Mech is uh, because of that big column of Kirby dots in the middle that uh, just seem to obscure most of his figure. You really have to look hard to actually tell that it's that it's actually a, a humanoid figure because the Kirby dots obscure the space between the legs, so you'd almost think it was just one solid mass. What did you think of the issue in general? Oh, I loved it. It was a fun little story. I mean, it, it's very basic, really. It's a traditional team-up of how how the two heroes uh, fight each other due to a, a misunderstanding. Um, but I guess it wasn't really much of a team-up per se, because they essentially split up and fight foes from the other person's time period. I was actually hoping for the two heroes to gang up on Murder Mech, as we saw on the cover. In fact, I, I just noticed Omak didn't engage Murder Mech once in this story at all. Right. That's a, a deep disappointment to me, because Omak should be on Superman's level, or but we never get that sense. We Actually, we get the sense that Murder Mech would have possibly uh, killed Omak, would have been able to defeat Omak, because we never see Omak face off against him. And yet, and Superman has a lot of trouble with him. So this is a powerful future robot. You know, we never get to see what exactly would be the the matchup here if uh, if Omega was a matchup. That is true, especially with Brother Eye in another era, as you had pointed out earlier. Speaking of Brother Eye, I just realized I'm having a hard time fitting this into Omega continuity because. You know, after OMAC, at the end of OMAC 8, Brother I was encased in in basically molten metal asteroids to kind of uh, depower him. And, and of course, we see him in, still in that state in Commandy 50, which means that there's like decades where he is trapped in that. And yet we see Brother I completely free, I guess, for lack of a better word. I mean, he's the way he normally looks, which means this story takes place somewhere within OMAC 1 and OMAC 8 of the original series, I suppose. Unless it was just another uh, continuity gaffe by, by Len Wein. Oh, I think it's uh, fair to say that it happens during the series somewhere. An untold tale, oh, yeah. as it were. An untold tale that uh, really, uh, you mentioned it during the synopsis, but kind of sounds like uh, 
a very uh, successful film franchise. Oh yes, <laughs> right. I know. You know, when I when I I actually bought this story when it came out, but I I realized uh, when I was re looking at it, I was I was thinking, boy, this this sounded like a copy of the Terminator story, and. Um, I didn't see The Terminator when it first came out. In fact, I think the first time I actually saw the movie The Terminator was when it came out on Laserdisc, which would have been, goodness, in the 1990s. So um, I didn't realize that The Terminator uh, movie actually came out about a year after this issue. This issue was released on June 2nd, 1983. And my thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics website for that information. And The Terminator movie itself was released in theaters on October 26, 1984. Though, of course, this is not the first sci-fi story about traveling back in time to prevent someone's existence by killing an ancestor. Though it may be the first one that didn't involve the Hitler family. Yeah, and I never noticed before you said something, <laughs> you know. Probably because I read this at the time. I probably saw Terminator on television sometime in the later 80s. Yeah, it never dawned on me, probably because when I read it, Terminator was not a, yet a thing, but it really does mirror that story. Among others, I mean, just the way that Murder Mech talks is the sort of robotic thing that we might have heard from, uh, from Robocop. For example. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, the first RoboCop movie debuted in 1987, July 17th, 1987, to be exact. So that, that was several years off. And yes, I know I joked about RoboCop and Terminator just to make it fun. But yes, it, it really had nothing to do, <laughs> unless I stole Len Wein's ideas, which I wouldn't put past Hollywood, actually. It's possible. And it's also possible Len Wein read in some trade or some uh, newspaper that they were making Terminator and that was the plot and just, and he, he forgot where he even got the idea which is also the secret origin of uh, swamp that is true so i mean murder mech to me was a you know when i was a kid i loved that way of speaking that everything was a declaration a conclusion a query uh, you know that he would preface everything he said with the type of statement it was going to be and this is an issue i read and reread and i you know i thought for sure murder mech would show up again somehow somewhere that he deserved a who's who entry, you know, because he, he so fired up my imagination. Mm. He was my first murder bot. Yes, he should have had a who's who entry. Someone is going to have to do something about that. Hmm. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if I know anyone. Someone is going to have to do something about that. Well, we'll have to see if there's ever yeah. a volume two. One thing I found surprising was that Omac, even though he's, he embodies, he's like a, He's a one-man army, right. is how he's described. And in fact, when he fights, it's ex that's exactly what it looks like in the Kirby comics. You know, just one punch and you see like uh, several people flying. You can punch an entire platoon, so basically, which is absurd. Yes. Yet awesome. <laughs> and in this, he fights. I mean, you, you see him fight, but he's also the sort of the peacemaker of the two. It's Superman who jumps to conclusions. It's Superman who initiates that Marvel-style violence against his co-star and it's uh, Omac who says, uh, whoa there, buddy, you know, maybe we're all on, on the same side here. Of course, he knows more mm. than Superman does. But at the same time, it's surprising to me that Omac, the, the warrior, is the one who plays Peacemaker in this. Yes, that's true. Even though he does work for a peacemaking agency, you know, the, 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 global, um, the global peace agency, you know. I, I mean, the whole concept of Omac was that he was supposed to be the one that would actually stop wars from happening. Uh, he would go in and do these missions right. where he would stop these people that, would, that are going to try and upset the balance of the world, uh, where everybody has nuclear weapons and, and any kind of imbalance could just set off World War III or what is known as the Great Disaster. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a war stopper yes. is what he is. And I mean, even on that personal level with the co-star, one of the things that disappointed me uh, about the issue, especially reading it now that I've, you know, that have more of a relationship with the character is that we never see him defeat his foes. Yeah, the Disney teacup rides of doom. As you call them. Uh, yes. So he destroys one teacup, but then the other teacups, it's all done offstage. Obviously, the, the Superman murder mech stuff is engaging, and I like all the tricks that Murder Mech has, and then Superman, how he, he fights it. It's a great Superman story, but when uh, it comes to Omac, it's all, you know, sort of offstage. We, we can guess how he defeats them all, and yet I wish we'd seen that. And it's not like George Perez can't do a lot of intricate little panels where where we see more action than any page should allow, 
<laughs> I mean, he could have done that, but... Well, you know, he was already clocking in about 9 to 12 panels a page already in this issue. But yes, I, I, I agree. I'm a little disappointed because usually, even though DC Comics Presents is a Superman book, they tend to highlight the guest star more often than Superman does. And usually it's for cross-promotional purposes. And of course, there's really nothing to promote here as OMAC didn't really have as a regular series, though they could have used it to springboard a new OMAC series if there was enough interest. But yeah, much, much of the battle that was shown on panel was Superman versus Murdermech. And of course, you know, Murdermech is the big villain. And again, another reason why OMAC should have engaged Murdermech in battle, just so we could see him. Right. It's almost like Murdermech is overpowered because all he has to do is kill a normal guy you know in 20th century metropolis but he has all these powers i mean maybe he was built to fend off superman in case since uh, that was you know superman was at the same location who knows but he should have been built to fight omac principally and that never happens uh, it's too bad let's talk about norman blank a little bit because sure. there's a whole big fake out where we think he's one guy the way that perez draws it you you sort of see the outlines of people he's looking at different let's call them quadrants uh, he's looking at all these yes. little different quadrants and trying to spot whether and it's a very terminator thing yes yes it's very interesting get the data on the person is you know and when it dings when we know that norman blank is in that quadrant we assume as Superman and Omag do that it's the foreground character, but of course there are background characters in the same quadrant. That's the joke. Yes. Uh, even more of a joke is that Norman Blank is the janitor who keeps showing up during the fight. He's just in the panels and he never stops cleaning. Yes. Which <laughs> <laughs> is. No, I mean, he busily goes about his work, and, he's, and he seems pretty much oblivious to what is going on around him. I don't see him with a Walkman. I don't see any headphones in there. So, you know, uh, the one, the only time he's truly reacting to the battle is on page 14, panel 6, where he's kind of like knocked back. With, and this is after Superman knocked Murder Mech through the floor and is swooping down to go into the hole after him. And right. I wonder if I'm wondering if his pose is more in awe of all the surrounding action or more of an awe, no, look at this mess I have to clean up. Yeah, yeah, he's very focused uh, on his job and i think that's uh i mean it's a joke within the comic we're seeing a background character who's seen it all he lives in metropolis you know yes. this is not his first day of destruction right right those large-scale super <laughs> battles are like an everyday occurrence yes <laughs> so he's very jaded but uh at the same time that so there's that joke it's also the the reveal that you know eventually when you say huh this this guy was norman blank and then you you go back and you actually see him in the action he was there all along he was in the scan uh, that murder yep. did so that's clever as well but it's also i wonder if lenween did this on purpose but is he showing traits that omac will one day also show the you know the the single-mindedness the unrelenting attitude of omac or, or were they in his ancestor already of course for different purposes. Only time would tell, correct. <laughs> but you know what's interesting is that we actually get a clue that that the man in the brown coat was not Norman Blank. I mean, not first you hear him declare like, "But I'm not," and he gets cut off by the, by the action. But but when the uh, when the teacup ride of doom comes by and they say we got to find this Norman Blank guy, they actually just whiz right by the brown suited man, Berkowitz, was it? Um, in uh, that was on the ledge. So that told me that, oh, yeah, they definitely got the wrong guy. That's right. So it was in there all along. Uh, it's not a great day for Superman in terms of jumping to conclusions. Uh, he jumped to a conclusion yes. that Omak was was a villain. And then he jumped to a conclusion that Berkowitz was Norman Blank. So, you know, he's, uh, he's a bit impulsive in this one. Yes, he did admit on panel that even a Superman can make mistakes. And he demonstrated it, too, on panel. <laughs> That just goes against his ideal image that was also uh, self-proclaimed on panel. Right. That is an odd proclamation. Yeah. Now, I, I have always described Superman as such, and, and I've done so uh, earlier, you know, the ideal person to aspire to. But to read him saying it about himself, it just seems a bit uh, self-aggrandizing for sure. Maybe he meant that, you know, his... Uh, you're, you're not fighting just a man, you're fighting, you know, an attitude, which is, I, I'll never give up. 
Uh, it's just clumsily, it's kind of awkwardly put. Overall, it's a great example of George Perez being the maestro of, of storytelling. I, I know there were some scenes that required some exposition, especially like when the molten car was, was falling on Murder Mech, they kind of had to explain what was happening. But, you know, there, there was a lot of needless exposition, in my, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, that was reflective of how comics were written at the time. Caption boxes and people thinking and... Uh, everything to explain the action that perhaps yeah. perhaps this is your first comic book and you sort of need the, the boost, which was essentially the uh, the way they approached it back then. Right. And even Superman was explaining what was going on, things that were happening to him. He was actually making commentary the whole way. It, it was I was hearing Danny Dark Superman from the Super Friends through that uh, adventure. And to be honest, that wasn't a bad thing to me. Yeah, I usually hear when I read Bronze Age stuff or Silver Age stuff, I will hear the voices from Super Friends. And then when I read comics from the late 80s and uh, 90s, then I hear the uh, the Bruce Tim animated series voices. It's always how it works in my head. Yeah, I think I didn't start hearing um, the daily voice um until well after the 2000s, to be honest. I was still hearing Danny Dark because I didn't really have any comparison when the post-crisis hit. It was still it was still Danny Dark as Superman to me. So, But yes, uh, I, I can definitely see that. And now, who fared better? Now, every show, we have a small debate uh, touching on various topics to see who fared better. And in this case, was it Superman or OMAC? Uh, so first up, how well does this fit into their stories' atmospheres? Was this more of a Superman comic or more of an OMAC comic? What do you think? Well, most of it took place in Metropolis. Um, so it seemed to be more of a, of a Superman comic in that regard because you barely saw OMAC's time period, except in the very beginning and then just the few cases where Brother Eye was looking for OMAC and, and trying to rebuild the time machine. So I think it, it, it accounted for maybe about... A little less than three pages total. I have to agree with you. Lenwein does try to use some of the purple prose that you find in the Kirby comic. Well, in the narration, mostly. And even mm -hmm. in the way... Uh, you know, he actually poaches a few lines from the original comics and puts them in Omak or Brother Eye's uh, mouth. Uh, uses the same turns of phrase. But, yeah, I, would, I mean, if it were an Omak comic, it would be balls to the wall action starring Omak doing things that seem improbable. And instead, we have Omak as a super strong character, a pretty good fighter, but is mostly whisked off stage. So I have to agree with you that this is more of a Superman story than it is an Omak story. Oh, well. Yes, even though mo most of this took place in, in Metropolis, to me, uh, a lot of this Metropolis actually looked like New York City. As, as I mentioned, the um, Grand Central, or the Metro Central Station, I'm sorry, uh, looked a, a whole lot like the Grand Central Station. And, and of course, when Superman took Omak up to the tall building, it looked like one of the World uh, Trade Center towers. Uh, as it was at the time. But of course, you know, George Perez was living in New York City at the time, and he was usually drawing New York uh, in the backgrounds of his new Teen Titans title. So, and of course, I think there are a lot of fans that uh, saw Metropolis as a version of New York uh, when they were reading his adventures. And that's another uh, symptom of a sort of marvelization that, that seemed to be happening in this issue. It's not just the guest stars fight and then sort of team up. Uh, it's also even the locale seems Marvel Universe more than DC Universe in a way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, the second topic is cool moves. Cool moves. So who had the best moves? Superman or Omak? Uh, I still have to go with Superman, uh, not just because I chose him. And, and what's interesting is that the, the best move that I saw Superman make was actually one in which the Man of Steel did not move at all. And of course, I'm, I'm talking about that scene on, on panel three on page six, whereby Murder Mech was trying to smash Superman with the police squad car, and the car just is smashed around Superman who doesn't budge at all. He doesn't even get knocked down. Again, it was like sticking a paper note on a memo spike. And it was brilliantly rendered by George Perez. And it's a very, very powerful panel, even though it only takes up about one-sixth of the page. That's a good move. And Superman has a lot of good moves here, even like the melting, the uh, subway car. And, you know, he comes off very well. Slim pickings for Omak, meanwhile, uh, especially because part mm. of the fight is offstage off panel and so um what what can i choose as far as best move um 
Hmm. Well, he was able to knock Superman a couple of inches at one punch. <laughs> uh, well, I'd say that if, uh, looking at this issue, the best move, I think, and it's uh, very well done by George Perez, is page 17. So on page 17, the teacups are flying at him. It's where he defeats the one teacup. And it's just the acrobatics that are very well rendered. So the way he, between panels, you see how he moves. So he avoids the uh, the lasers, and then he jumps on the rim of the cup. And then you see him like he's swinging back like on a trapeze. And then in the next panel, he's eye to eye with the, the teacup driver. You can imagine that he sort of gave himself a pull-up, like a massive pull-up that pulled him up to that, that height. So... Uh, that is his best move. He's a lot more uh, acrobatic than you'd expect. He's more of, He seems more of a muscle-bound puncher kind of character. But he's very, very, very acrobatic in this issue. And the way he dis- defeats that teacup is his best move. It's still Superman who gets the best moves, though. I agree. I do like that one scene before Omak does his, his acrobatic stunt where he's just standing there and presents himself to the teacups. Uh, he's standing there uh, ready to fight. And, and you see everybody else running away except for our janitor, of course, who's just sweeping <laughs> off to the right. <laughs> but but it, it's, uh, again, it's a, it's a panel that takes up uh, about a fifth of the page. But it, it's a very powerful... Um, intro to OMAC. I mean, in today's world, that would have been a two-page spread, I'm sure, in the comics, but, um, oh, yeah. but it still has that same power. I, I do like that uh, that stance he takes before he does that, that very cool move. Perez is good at creating hero shots uh, at whatever size. It doesn't matter the size. Now, what about dumb or weird moves? Here, we're instead of defending our character, we're going to take a shots at them. What is uh, Superman's Right. Dumbest or strangest move. Besides what we had mentioned earlier about how he jumps to the wrong conclusions at least twice, I think the fact of Superman flying that man that he thought was Norman Blank up to a very high narrow ledge uh, in in the Metro Central Station, I, I, that did not seem like a very good idea to me. <laughs> I honestly don't think that would have been comparatively safe, especially since there was a battle happening below that could have collapsed the entire station. He should have just got him out of there. Yeah, not not too safe. For Omak, it's, again, very hard to pick because he doesn't get enough of the action. And when he gets the action, everything seems fine. So I'm going to say that the weird move isn't really his as much as it is uh, Lens and George's, which is the lame page 24 when Superman swoops in and Omak has already defeated them. Well, that's lame. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> he looked like he killed one of them, the one in the foreground where you just see his hand like that. That's just, he looked dead. <laughs> well, yeah, because I don't know about these teacups, what they're made of. I guess metal, mm. they could be porcelain. I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Norman Blank is able to sweep it away in the next panel pretty easily. Yeah, and those those ships are shattered. I mean, they're, they, they could be made of glass, but when the guy get taken out it's really violent and we don't know if they can survive this i mean this is war to omac indeed i would like to believe that they kind of you know pulled the uh, super friends broadcast standards and practices here so that they nobody dies but you know who, who knows it, it was never said either way so it's, it's left up to the reader to decide i suppose that since superman isn't outraged then they survived yes i suppose so so that makes it even more lame, is that right? <laughs> well, no, no, that's fine. Uh, poor poor Bravo, maybe he can return. Um, finally, it's always nice to rate the Friendly Farewell. This is a tradition, we've discussed this on every show. The Friendly Farewell is the final moment between the two guest stars and whether or not they walk away friendly. And usually in DC Comics, I find that they are friendly at the end, whereas in Marvel Comics... Not so much, as you'll see through this series. Here, we've talked about this being a sort of a marvelized story, but is it a friendly farewell? What did you think of their uh, their goodbyes? Well, it, it definitely wasn't unfriendly. Uh, it, it was more surprising than anything. I mean, Omak is pulled back in time to his time period, I mean, by, uh, by Brother I, before he even has... I, I guess Omak does have a chance to say farewell, but Superman doesn't. In fact, he's like, wait, Shane, come back, type of thing, as he disappears. I'm tingling! (laughs) Indeed. He's tingling. So, 
Yeah. So, so it was, I, I, you know, it wasn't a complete farewell anyway. So I guess in that regard, it, it, it could be a little underwhelming, but I, I did like the uniqueness of it about how they're, you know, it was just, oh, he, he popped back where he was. And uh, at least Superman didn't have to worry about how to do that. Now, uh, of course, he has to uh, rely on Norman Blank to clean up uh, Murder Mac downstairs, I'm sure. But I did like the uniqueness of how neither of them actually found out who Norman Blank was. Although I would hope that Superman as Clark Kent, would have been intrigued enough to do a little research and, uh, you know, figure it out eventually. I mean, it's possible yes. since he's a staff member. Right, right. Using his supervision on a Metropolis phone book, Superman locates Norman <laughs> Blank. Very yeah. easy. Very easy to do. Yeah, it seems like he has, as a reporter, he has those those chops. He, you know, he's a, he's a researcher. Uh, he should be able right. to figure this out. Just it doesn't happen in the comic itself. Or maybe, he, yes. you know, uh, I mean, it's Superman. He's got uh, three ongoing series. So maybe he gets too busy to, to check that up. That is true. That is true. And it, and it would definitely, you know, um, spoil the twist of the ending. We'll take a break for a couple of promos and then we'll be back to wrap things up. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. Rocketed to Earth from the distant planet Krypton, a small vessel was ensnared by the world's interplanetary watchtower defense net and became the property of Dr. Myron Forrest and the Global Peace and Security Agency. So too did the vessel's Kryptonian passenger, the young Cal L, renamed Jacques Blanc, tasked to protect the world from the nefarious schemes of nasty nemeses as Mr. Titano K. Big and the tough Tully Terra Humanite. The mild-mannered Jacques Blanc is infused with the solar-based energies of Dr. Forrest's Brother Eye satellite system to become the ultimate Mohawk mulleted military might of the Global Peace and Security Agency. The occupational supernovical army person. Oh, snap. In the next exciting issue of Oh, Snap, occupational supernovical army person. The diabolical Major Luthor has manipulated the World Bank to impose budget cuts on the Global Peace and Security Agency. When the sinister Dr. Scuba Raniac arrives to shrink and collect the oceans of the Earth, Oh Snap is forced to take drastic measures to secure the resources needed to stop this otherworldly menace. Don't miss a blank check for Jacques Blanc. On sale the 18th of September. Welcome to the world of tomorrow! <laughs> the Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. always have to say it that way. Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukonori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. We're back for one final feature, the bonus team-up in which each of us proposes the perfect OMAC team-up. So what do you have for us, Zoom? My proposal, Siskoid, is a team-up between OMAC and Captain Marvel 
in a special two-part series that begins in the tradition of all great superhero team-ups, essentially a fight between our two heroes. Uh, However, in this instance, uh, to ensure that the book turns a profit, we will include corporate sponsors. So in part one, Captain Marvel kicks sand in Omak's face, and then Omak retaliates by throwing Hostess Twinkies cakes back at Captain Marvel. And this will all happen in a story entitled The Incident That Made a Man Out of Omak. And then, of course, in part two, we discovered the conflict was all a big misunderstanding because Captain Marvel didn't see Omak when he was walking on the beach. So they make peace, and then they team up in search of Captain Marvel's missing eyes, which is somehow related to the creation of Brother Eye. And it is the ultimate buddy hero story that I call an eye my brother's keeping. And if the response is good, we can write more stories and it'll fill a trade paperback, which we can call Omac and Cheese, book one. (laughs) Well, I think it makes sense to put these two together because there's a real similarity between them. Uh, They both use an acronym, Shazam, uh, Omac are acronyms. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's the whole thing about getting hit with lightning or energy from above that transforms them into their superhero forms. Oh, yes, yes. You inspired another team-up between the Wizard Shazam and the Brother Eye Satellite. Oh, man. and Well, that should be like a side story between, you know, in that same series. Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, I'll get right on a synopsis of that. But in the meantime, you tell me about your bonus team-up. I had trouble with this one. Uh, but uh, at the end, I thought, well, how about this? Omac and the Haunted Tank. The story is called One Man Army Corpses. <laughs> and it has Omac pull the haunted tank and now possessed by the entire crew from the Robert Kaniger original stories, in addition to Jeb Stewart's, uh, out of a museum to help him fight an army of murder mechs, because he really does deserve another appearance. Yes, he does. What do you Indeed. Think? Oh, I would love to see an army of murder mechs. That, that sounds fantastic. And and the fact that the haunted tank was possessed by the ghost of Jeb Stewart, and now you're saying they're possessed by the entire crew. I wonder if they are able to use that, the fact that they can possess a mechanical object to kind of take over some murder mechs to kind of even the odds in the battle, perhaps. Maybe I'm overthinking well, it. Maybe that's how it ends. Mm. Well, thanks for teaming up with me, Zoom. Uh, remind people where they can find you. Oh, of course. Sure. Thank you. Uh, Well, most of my online appearances of late uh, have been on Facebook and Twitter under my own name. I have also made a quasi-regular return to The Line It Is Drawn, which is a weekly sketch challenge feature on the Comic Book Resources website. Uh, This involves a select group of artists, including myself, uh, drawing comic book and pop culture art based on Twitter suggestions around a weekly theme. Uh, just visit cbr.com, and that's charliebravoromero.com, and type the phrase The Line It Is Drawn in the search function and you'll find it. All of the line artists are brilliantly clever, so it's well worth your time to check out their works while you're there, uh, even if I am not. Uh, and again, I apologize in advance for all those pop-up adverts. They are not my doing. I also have a blog site that I occasionally update called Omelette au Fromage. Uh, which can be found at zoom-yukonori.blogspot.com. And there you will find some posts about the time that I teamed up the Super Friends Wonder Woman and Secret Agent James Bond to find a microchip on the Hall of Doom, and another time where I actually teamed up with the Power Rangers, or reasonable facsimiles, to defeat an otherworldly attack on a Johubaru Malaysia shopping center. And finally, I have been honored to have a podcast of my own on the Fine Fire and Water podcast network, which is going to be the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. And it will spotlight my favorite Done in One comic book stories, much like the story that we have just covered today. It should debut in late August and early September. There you go. And folks, that's Zoom X-U-M if you're looking for it, not Zoom like the villain. Oh, yes, indeed. In fact, you know, when we were watching The Flash uh, during season two, my, um, well, I won't spoil anything for you, sir, but uh, I, I will say that, you know, when I was watching it with my family, my kids would always look at me funny whenever Jay Garrick would say that I am a nightmare that you don't wake up from. <laughs> Yeah, I bet. A reminder that we do enjoy reading your comments and that the best place for that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also visit the Fire and Water Podcast Network Facebook page or tag us on Twitter using the hashtag FWPodcasts. See you next time for another amazing team up because after all, justice is a team effort. I shouldn't laugh at my own jokes. You know what? That's maybe I shouldn't have written that.